Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Lynn Twist. Lynn Twist is a hugely accomplished global activist, author, and teacher. She's an award-winning speaker who has devoted her life to sustainability and economic integrity. She is president and founder of the Soul of Money Institute, and she's the co-founder, along with her husband, Bill, of the Pachamama Alliance, which works to preserve the rainforest by empowering the indigenous people who are its natural custodians. Lynn Twist is the author of several books, including The Soul of Money and With Sounds True, an audio program on unleashing the soul of money. Lynn Twist embodies the loving power of grandmother energy, a woman on purpose, a woman who gives and gives so generously and with clarity, fierceness, and power. Here's my conversation with someone I really respect, Lynn Twist. I wanted to begin, Lynn, by sharing how it was a couple of years ago that I was at the Wisdom 2.0 event and you and I ran into each other. And you said very nonchalantly, what's new, Tammy? What are you working on? And I said, well, we're partnering with Wisdom 2.0 and LinkedIn to produce a new program called the Inner NBA. And it's a, mm -hmm. an online training on the wisdom skills needed in business today. And you said, you just looked at me and you said, count me in, whatever I can do to help, whatever I can do to support, I'm in. And I thought, first of all, what a gracious, generous human you are to just say something like that. You know, how rare that is for someone to, you know, most people are protected or guarded and you were just like, count me in. Okay, so fast forward a couple years, I write to you and I say, will you give the commencement address because of course I remembered your offer. Will you give the commencement address for our first graduating class of the Inner MBA? And you said yes again. There you were. <laughs> and now this all leads up to our conversation today because in that commencement address, you offered something to our graduates and to me, and I thought it was so helpful. And I wanna bring that now to the listeners of Insights at the Edge. And what you did was you located us in time this time 
that we're in. That's the way I felt. I felt like talking to Lynn Twist, there was like this cosmic GPS that came in and said, here's where we are. Here's where we are as emerging business people wanting to make a difference. Here's where we are as a human species at this time. So let's start there through the lens of Lynn Twist, help us locate mm. ourselves. Mm, wonderful. My goodness. Thank you, Tammy. <laughs> Well, let's see. Um, I feel that uh, it's helpful. And I really got this from Buckminster Fuller, who I was so fortunate to know and, uh, and study with and listen to quite a bit, uh, how important it is to look at the continuum, the long continuum of time. It's very helpful um, because we get so involved in, uh, you know, the kind of petty pace of the daily needs that we forget that we're on this planet for a particular time and and it it it's not an accident i think when we show up uh how we show up in the long continuum so anyway i i think of us now as in the first uh century of the third millennium so we we just started the third millennium no we we just passed the year 2000 and i know it's it's all an invented calendar but never mind let's locate ourselves in the beginning of the third millennium, only 21, 22 years into it, and the first century of the third millennium. And um, it's I love doing that because it also reminds me of the many, many, many prophecies that I've been privy to or have been shared with me by indigenous people that I know or other people who carry prophecies. There's so many prophecies about this time. This first century in the third millennium is a time where there's been many prophecies that um, that talk about this time as being very, very important, very pivotal, very another what you might call axial age. And um, I love thinking about that because it's so tumultuous. It's so uh, both exciting and scary and confusing and unprecedented uh, and wonderful and uh, awesome that uh, that if you put it in that concept, much much larger context, the content starts to make a little more sense. Tell me a little bit about the prophecies that have been important to you. Well, there's a, a, a very powerful prophecy of the eagle and the condor, and there's many interpretations of that. It's an oral tradition from North America and South American indigenous people. Uh, many of the South American people, the Quechua people in the Andes, uh, talk about the prophecy in a particular way that it's the end of one Pachacuti. A Pachacuti is a 500-year cycle uh, uh, it's the end of the fourth Pachacuti and the beginning of the fifth Pachacuti, the next 500-year cycle. And the last Pachacuti, the 500-year cycle that we're just completing, um, began right around the uh, 1500, year 1500. Some people would remember the, the uh, year 1492, it rings a bell, uh, because the Pachacuti, the 500-year Pachacuti they're talking about is the 500 years since the conquest and they call it the Pachacuti of dominance and darkness, the indigenous peoples of the Andes. And that we're moving out of the Pachacuti of dominance and darkness, 500 years of oppression and dominance. Uh, certainly they felt that, but you could say the patriarchy, you could say, uh, in other ways of looking at it, into the Pachacuti of balance and light, which is the next 500 years, that's the fifth Pachacuti. But in between the fourth and the fifth Pachacuti, the prophecy says uh, between those that in that transition uh, space, um, there'll be 25 to 50 years 
of huge climactic events. This has been prophesied for millennia. Um, tsunamis, floods, uh, fires, um, earthquakes, massive climactic changes uh, that will humble all her creatures. Mother, Mother Earth, they call Pachamama. Pachamama will humble all her creatures for 25 to 50 years so they remember their rightful role in relationship with her as we go into the Pachacuti of balance and light. So that prophecy um, has been told for a long, long time about this time, and that the prophe prophecy says the Pachacuti of balance and light will be when the mind and the heart of our species, the human species, will remember that it's one, and that for the last 500 years, the mind and heart of the human species have been separated, have been um, truncated, have been um, lost each other. Um, and so that's one prophecy that I find very, very compelling. And then should I go to another one? Yeah, sure. These are, these are terrific, please. Um, another one is uh, called uh, the bird of humanity. And the bird of humanity uh, comes from the Baha'i people. Uh, and it's also been um, validated and affirmed and sort of come through the Cherokee people as well. So it says that the bird of humanity has two great wings a male wing and a female wing. And the male wing has been fully extended and fully fleshed out and fully strong and fully expressed for hundreds and hundreds of years. But the female wing of the bird of humanity has been folded in, not quite fully extended, not quite fully expressed for hundreds of years. So the male wing of the bird of humanity has had to become over-muscular, overdeveloped and ultimately has had to become violent to keep the bird of humanity afloat and therefore we've been flying in circles for hundreds and hundreds of years and this is the century the first century of the third millennium when the feminine wing the female wing in all of us will fully extend itself fully express itself in women and men and the male wing will begin to relax and the bird of humanity for the first time will soar and I love that prophecy. Mm -hmm. Very, very hopeful. Now, just to take a moment here, because I think when we look outside in the culture, we can say all kinds of things about, will we actually merge into an age of balance and light or not? But I'm interested for a moment, Lynn, just in you, you as a person and how the mind and the heart and the masculine and the feminine are coming together in your own experience and what that alchemy is like for you as an individual. Oh, Tammy, you're such a good interviewer. <laughs> you're so good. Um, well, it's a huge thing in my life. And um, I have named, along with many other people, but I'm one of them, named this century the Sophia century, the century when women will take our rightful role in co-equal partnership with men and the world will come into balance. Um, and the Sophia, as you know, refers to divine wisdom, particularly divine feminine wisdom. And I find in my own life, in my own heart, in my own body, I feel uh, much more room, space, freedom to, um, to express the divine feminine wisdom that, is, uh, that I'm carrying, that all people are carrying, men are carrying too, but women in particular. I, uh, I find it in my relationship with my husband, Bill. He's a, you know, he's a business guy. He's a, he's a, he's a deal maker, a, a super athlete. 
But in, um, in 1994, 95, 96, when we co-founded the Pachamama Alliance, he left his business career behind and he became the CEO of, uh, of, of what most people call an NGO. He became uh, much more uh, accessible to his heart and his longing to make a difference with his life uh, rather than doing deals, you know, <laughs> uh, creating financial wins. Um, and uh, we jo he joined me in, uh, in the work of the Pachamama Alliance. He, he co-founded it with me, and he's the CEO of it. He's in Ecuador right now with Indigenous people. Um, I find my uh, relationship with my children, and particularly my grandchildren, um, uh, because I, I'm going to reference uh, Arkan Rushwala, another wonderful Indigenous person who carries prophecies and ancient wisdom, has has uh, declared that this is the time when grandmother energy is the energy that will carry us through the wormhole we're in, that it's grandmother energy. And everybody kind of knows what that means. When you think about grandmother energy, it's different than mother energy, but it has a lot of that in it. That grandmother energy is steeped in wisdom and uh, letting go and, um, and experience as well as, uh, as care and love and holding. And so um, grandmother energy is available to everybody, too. It's not you don't have to be, you know, a certain age or a certain sex. Um, so and I can feel and I am a grandmother. I have grandchildren now and I can feel the 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 depth of grandmother energy in my body. I just took two of my granddaughters to the Amazon and we sat under what's called a mother tree in the Amazon, one of the huge kapok trees. And uh, I can't tell you, I'll start crying if I talk about it sitting there with them um, in the forest, in the Amazon rainforest, in the heart of the world, in the sacred headwaters of the Amazon, sitting under the Kapok tree, the holy tree for the, for the Atuar people, the indigenous people who we were visiting, sitting there with them, uh, I got a huge download of, what is it, uh, you know, well, love. Love, but not love like I can articulate, obviously. Um, enormous power, enormous power of love from the forest, from the earth, from the trees. And obviously, I love my granddaughters, but it's way a, a million, billion times what, um, what the love that any grandmother feels for her granddaughters, the love for life, and that it is the love for life that will allow us to flourish, not just survive, but flourish out of whatever's going on right now that's testing us, uh, that will allow us to hear and receive and um, know and take in the feedback from the mother, which is climate change, which is the pandemic, I think. Huge feedback to our species that if we can, rather than uh, operate out of fear as we go forward, operate out of a kind of love that is so strong, so unshakable, and so deep that there is nothing more powerful than that, love for uh, life. So, um, sorry about that, just kind of lost it there, but maybe I found it there. Um, that's uh, the personal experience of the feminine coming through me, the divine uh, appointment that is my um, that my appointment this lifetime and I'd say your appointment this lifetime 
um, that I think we're all being tested to discover, uh, connect with, and fully express. You know, Lynn, I'm glad we got right into it. And, (laughs) you know, when I experienced you offering this commencement blessing, I had a moment I was like, I wonder what's going on inside of Lynn Twist. Not her ideas, which are brilliant, not all of the things she's accomplished, which, you know, would take me the full hour just to, you know, name them. Not even the great stories, but I was like, something's happening inside at a kind of frequency level. I don't know what other word to use, a feeling level. And I was like, that's the thing I really want to know more about and how you've made yourself available to feel that and to have that come through you. So I wonder if you could share more of the kind of inner availability that you have for that love and grandmother power to come through. Um, Well, the real answer is I don't know. (laughs) That's the truth. Um, uh, I've always been uh, an open kind of person. Um, uh, I don't value privacy or, um, you know, the kinds of things that many other people really crave and treasure, and I I, I respect that. Uh, but my house is open, my home is open, my heart is open, my life is open. I'm open. I'm an open book. Um, I don't have anything that I'm hopefully hiding, or maybe there's something there, but I don't even know myself. But one of the 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 greatest gifts that I've received, you know, I I did have the great privilege of working with Mother Teresa when I was a young woman in the hunger project and you can't get more um, uh, better and more uh, real teachings about love than than being in the presence of, of a living saint like Mother Teresa in, in fact her in particular I I have had in my life with the hunger project the opportunity to sit in in ceremony with women and the after their children starved to death in in the great famine in Ethiopia in 1984-1985 and sit with them as they mourned and wailed over the death of their children uh, to starvation. And you can't find a place in your heart, you know, deeper than uh, wailing with a mother who's lost her child to something so horrendous as starving to death at at, at her breast, a baby dying at her breast. So I've had the, I've seen the depths of despair so um, up close and personal um, and I've had the, you know, the joy and thrill of being, um, being a, 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 a woman who's walked in the world and, and had the privilege of making a difference with her life. And then most recently, my, it's not that recent, 25 years, 27 years, uh, working in the Amazon rainforest and really opening my, my capacity to love to the community of life. And when I say that, I mean insects, you know, worms, uh, vines, uh, leaves, fungus, uh, the extraordinary beings in the forest. I was uh, recently with an extraordinary shaman named Manari Ushiwa in the last couple of years walking behind him in the forest of the Zapra people in the sacred headwaters of the Amazon. And he had his machete and he was cutting a trail you know, he was cutting a way through for, for himself and for me. And he was barefoot and bare chested. And I had all my equipment on to keep myself from the bugs and, you know, all this stuff, like high boots and long sleeves and mosquito repellent. And at a certain point, walking behind him, we were alone. No one else was there. 
behind us and uh, he was taking me through the forest and showing me something. And at a certain moment he stopped and he turned around and he said, can you feel them? And I said, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What do you mean? He said, stop. Can you feel them? And I just stopped and listened and tried to see what he meant. And then he said, the millions and millions of souls. And in that instant, they were there. The souls of the butterflies, the souls of the snakes, the souls of the monkeys, the souls of the trees, the souls of the leaves, the souls of the insects, the souls of the, the leafcutter ants. Suddenly they all had souls and I could feel them. I could feel them as a part of me. And um, that's another thing that will bring me to tears because I had never, ever uh, thought of it that way. And I'd been working in the forest for years had a relationship with the trees, yes, as beings, but not everything. And since that moment, I now have a, 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 a love relationship, I'll say, with the natural world, the community of life, and of course, the great mother herself. And to expand the capacity of my heart to love like that has been um, monumental, uh, game-changing, I don't know, words, but, and given me much more access to using the taproot of love to do the work that I do, which has always been where I came from, hopefully, but now it's so much more vast and so much, so much more infinite, and it probably was always there, but now I know that. Okay, I'm going to have to go in even more with a magnifying glass, it's okay, because when I hear you say that you could feel the souls, the souls of the insects, the butterflies, the worms, everything that was in the forest. I kind of have my own imagination of what that might be like, but I want to actually know what it was like in your experience when you say you could feel the souls. Like, what, what did that, what does that mean? Like a vibration or what? If you could describe it to me. Um, well, it's like when you're so moved about something that you can't, you disappear. Uh, when you're witnessing a sunset and it's so breathtaking or the birth of a child that in a way you're not there, you are there, you're not there, your identity dissolves. Your, what some people would call ego is, I don't think it ever goes away completely, but it, it, I didn't have it at that moment. So my identity, my Lynnness, was gone. And I was the souls of the creatures that were around me. I mean, people have this experience in when they take sometimes ayahuasca, which we participate with, or they take uh, Jarema or one of these, you know, mind altering substances that, that has you sort of dissolve your, your identity. Uh, and I, I don't want to liken it to that because I'm not sure it is. I don't, uh, well, it was kind of like that. So like that. <laughs> okay, good. That's that's helpful. Now, you mentioned that you're calling this century the Sophia century. And you also yeah. talked about your marriage with your husband. You know, you're now, uh, you've been married, what, 50 some odd years and describing how when you first came together, it sounded like it was perhaps more of a traditional marriage, uh, but how it's evolved over the last uh, five plus decades. And I'm curious what inner work 
you had to do to claim your full Sophia power in your life that could be helpful to other women who are in a process of that taking a stand in their own Sophia power? Like, what are the breakthroughs you have to be willing to take this or that on inside yourself? Oh, wow. Gosh. <laughs> well, um, I just finished a book called Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a purchase, Purpose Larger Than Yourself. And um, I, that's my path. I maybe it's not for everybody, but it's my path. I actually, you know, so many people do such beautiful inner work as Buddhists or their meditation practice is something they love so much. I didn't start there. I started with making a difference with my life, really, uh, and and uh, committing myself to ending world hunger, which when we made that commitment way back in 1977, it was totally impossible. And yet taking on the impossible uh, shapes you into the person you need to be to fulfill it. In other words, the, my path has been the, the, the purpose way larger than myself, something I could never accomplish in my own lifetime, perhaps, or I could never accomplish alone, has shaped me into the kind of person who could maybe even do that. And... Um, that's a funny answer to your question because you're asking about my inner life and I'm talking about something out there kind of. But I really mean to say that my path to transformation came from Buckminster Fuller and his commitment to um, create a world that works for everyone with no one, nothing left out. When he first said that sentence, or not when he first said it, when I first heard it, he probably said it many times, creating a work that, world that works for everyone with no one and nothing left out. Uh, my whole body went into like a kundalini thing or like, you know, I couldn't, it was vibrating. I realized that's why I'm born. That's, I want to do that. I want to be that. So being that kind of a commitment, being the commitment to end world hunger, now the, the, the way we talk about Pachamama Alliance to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. That's a, a commitment that makes my heart full. <laughs> and so I would say that I've been shaped by my commitments that are larger than my own life that has put my petty concerns about whether I look good or whether people like me way in the background. I still have those little thoughts, but they don't, they're not in the foreground. That's, they're, not, they're, not, they're not bothering me so much um, because I'm up to something. I'm up to something way larger than I can accomplish unless I surrender to be, to be used, to become an instrument of my commitment, um, to become a channel for what wants to happen. And that has uh, homeschooled me, as Paul Hawkins says. Uh, that has shaped me into uh, a person who's, who's more capable than I thought I could ever be. And I do meditate and I do pray and I do take care of myself and I do love inner work. But my path has been more about uh, through the power of commitment. Yeah. And, you know, what's so interesting to me, Lynn, I just want to underline it for a moment, is here you heard this lecture by Buckminster Fuller 
what, in the 1970s at some point in San Francisco as a young person, and that it could have that huge of an influence on you. Something he said, the whole course of your life changed. And I think the reason that's so important to me is sometimes I think about, you know, uh, all the podcasts I've done, all the programs Sounds Truth's put out, and I just think, God, you know, if there's a few sentences out there, if there's something in this conversation that has anything even, you know, 10% of that impact on somebody, it can be such a big deal. So I just wonder what your thoughts are about that as someone who goes out and talks and, you know, gives so many presentations. Well, I hope that, that some of the things that I say, which mostly I've heard from other wonderful humans like you and your wonderful podcasts um, uh, have, have done that for others. And people write to me and say to me, yes, that is the case. I was just on a podcast. Uh, I don't know if I can call it a podcast, but the thing yesterday, Humanity Rising, Jim Garrison's wonderful uh, things he does every single morning for this was 401. I was on the very first Humanity Rising broadcast and I was on the one yesterday, which was number 401. And um, Charles Eisenstein were on together and, and we had a conversation and there were other wonderful, amazing people on there. And one of the things that we were talking about was endangered species. It was the week of endangered species conversations. And Thursday was about the endangered species called, species called us, humans. <laughs> and um, one, at one part of the conversation, we talked about this thing about surviving, that will our species survive uh, our own extinction. And we realized that surviving is not the goal, actually. That's an inaccurate goal because we could survive in bubbles or have some sort of, you know, weird uh, mechanical future that has us survive. It's, it's not the right goal. The goal is flourishing, thriving as a species that is a contribution, like Thomas Berry said, a mutually enhancing, enhancing human-earth relationship where we are contributing to the community of life, where we are nourishing ourselves and we are flourishing. And that was a, a that conversation had a huge impact on me. And then I got hundreds of responses. And it wasn't like I said it or Charles said it. It was in our conversation. It wanted to be said. So what I want to acknowledge is that you... Tammy, create environments, ecosystems for what wants to be said, to be said by, you know, Paul Hawk and by me, by you, by the Marianne Williamson, by the people you, by the people you interview, the people who show up. It, this is a time and a place, and it's probably always been true, that what wants to be said needs to come through. And when it does, it comes through maybe you or me or but it does change the trajectory. And I'll never forget when Buckminster Fuller sat at my uh, dinner table with my children. Uh, we had him for dinner and, um, and my, my daughter was eight and she said this amazing, profound, insightful child comment. And Bucky turned to Bill, my husband and I, and he said, never forget that your children are your elders in universe time. They've come into a more complete, more evolved universe than you'll ever understand except through their eyes. And that sentence had such an impact on me as a parent. And every time I get a chance like this now, 
I share that with people, and it has huge impact on people's capacity to parent in a new way, in a way that allows their children to be wise and to be evolved and to be uh, people that they learn from. So that's an example. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's what your life is about and mine too. You've been listening to Insights at the Edge. How does healing work? Can science explain so-called miraculous healings? These are among the many questions Dr. Lissa Rankin set out to answer in her newest book, Sacred Medicine. Rich with the practices and protocols that Dr. Rankin found to be especially effective, Sacred Medicine delivers a thoughtful, grounded exploration of questions around how we heal, bringing her medically trained eye to explore healing practices from around the world. Explore the book, free teachings, and more at thesacredmedicinebook.com. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Let's keep delivering uh, here, Lynn, and uh, opening the channel, which is you said that this first 25 to 50 years has been prophesized as a time of great disruption, but we have the opportunity at the end to move into a period of balance. You know, um, may it be so, God willing. So my question to you would be, what do you think is required, is being asked of us? How are we being called now to be participants so that in the second half of this Sophia century, we can have balance and light and not the disruption we're experiencing right now? Well, I think if people are willing and open, like the people probably listening to this podcast are, to um, live in that context, then um, the choices, then they know and can be accountable and responsible for, we can be accountable and responsible for, that the choices we make every day impact the future of life for the next 1,000 years. And when you live with that consciousness, that uh, awareness, it sounds like it might be a burden. However, it, it is actually the opposite. It ennobles your life. You realize how powerfully you can live in a way that makes a difference. And so to consciously make choices, to know that the impact of your choices really are not trivial, but they actually do literally impact uh, the future of life for the next 1,000 years. Also to know, and or to maybe I'll say assert, but I feel like I, this is in my inner knowing for me at least, that we're in an evolutionary leap, that as a species, we've come to a place like all species do in in the evolution of species, where they need to evolve or die. And we're there uh, as a species, thinking about ourselves as a species rather than 
a clan or a tribe or I'm white or I'm black or I'm blue or I'm green or I'm a man or I'm a woman or I'm powerful or I'm weak or I'm poor or I'm Republican or I'm rich. All of those labels to get rid of them. I, I wish on the television they would not put the name of the person and then that they're a Republican or a Democrat. I wish they would just not put that on there because you can't listen to who they are because you listen through a filter of some label. Um, if we could get rid of all those labels and just listen to each other as human beings, be with each other as human beings, as we walk each other through the portal of the evolutionary leap, that maybe every one of us won't make it, but as a species, we need to take the leap and to figure out what is that in my life? What kind of a leap do I take that has me really not just get incrementally a little bit better and wiser and a little bit smarter or a little bit more disciplined or all the things that I, you know, I want for myself, but really take an evolutionary leap. And I think when I had that experience with a Minari in the forest and I had this experience of the oneness of all living beings, that was the beginning for me of my evolutionary leap. Now, when I look for wisdom, I do go to your podcast, but I also go outside to the trees. <laughs> And I really have a, a relationship with them. And it's, it's not, you know, new agey weird. It is, I get real, solid, powerful information. Can you give me an example of that? Well, I, I'm working with Suzanne Samard. Who oh, I wow. Wonderful. Invite on your podcast. She's just awesome. She's the, for our audience, she's the author of a book on the mother tree and a BC researcher, British Columbia researcher. Yeah. Yeah. A forest ecologist. And she wrote the mother tree and she, her mother tree uh, TED talk has millions and millions of views. And she now and I are very, very uh, close colleagues in a project we're doing. And she's educated me about how the mother trees download all kinds of wisdom uh, through the mycorrhizal and uh, fungal network to the trees in the forest that they know are in some ways their children or nieces or nephews or cousins. Um, there's a whole uh, society, there's a whole uh, communication system constantly going on. And now once I've re read her book and, and become a, 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 an advocate, a colleague, an ally of Suzanne's, Dr. Professor Sumards, Sumards I, I know that when I'm confused or upset or um, lost, or in a quandary that the, uh, there's a tree that I've chosen in the Presidio. I live next to the Presidio uh, where it's like a three-minute walk from my house. Uh, if I go to that tree and put my hands on the, on the trunk, it's a very large tree, and my heart next to the trunk in a, in a certain place where I like to, to sort of be with her, I, I calm, I center, I feel, I somehow know. And I don't get like a specific answer to a question. I get in touch with the fact or the, let's say, energy of natural knowing. Uh, I come back to my house and my office and something shows up. Uh, so that's a specific yeah. example. Yeah. You know, inter interesting hearing you talk about our evolutionary leap and being part of it. What happened inside me was I thought, you know, this is a time for each of us to be bold in whatever way in our own life, to be people who can take an individual leap as part of the leap for our species. And I, I wonder what you think about that. 
I think that's absolutely true. In fact, I advocate wherever I can for us to dream big now, big, big, big. Uh, another person I love is Dan Pallotta. You should have him on your thing if you haven't had him. He's awesome. Dan Pallotta has 10 million views in his TED Talk. He's a great friend of mine. And he talks about we, we're in this mess because we don't think big enough to tackle the problems that we have in a way that gives us the vision we need to tackle them. And I'll say what everybody knows, the quote, uh, where is the, where, uh, Lao Tzu, where, is, where there is no vision, the people will perish. We need vision now, big vision, big vision. And I, that's one of the things that I love to listen for and uh, create wherever I can. Uh, that's why the Pachamama Alliance's mission is to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. I think that's how Paul Hawken has written Regeneration. We can end the climate crisis in one generation if we are committed to regeneration. And regeneration to me includes regenerating what does it mean to be human. I think the pandemic is morning sickness for a pregnant species. And we, you know, when you're pregnant and you don't know you're pregnant and you have morning sickness, you think you're sick. But when you find out you're pregnant, you can tolerate the illness that comes with pregnancy. You love throwing up in the morning because you're going to have a baby. And I think we're entering a birth canal and it might be a painful one and the birth might be painful, but we're giving birth to a new kind of human being. And if we're willing to allow that to come through us and to think really big about what kind of a world is the world we really know we can create, co-create with evolution uh, and keep that vision as powerful as the challenges and obstacles that we see between us and that vision, we'll get through these obstacles, we'll transform them. They will give us the strength to leap into that new vision and become the species we need to be to uh, not only prevail, but flourish on this planet. And, um, and can you describe the new human being to me? What's the new human being like, perhaps in ways that are different? What are our new capacities or ways of being? Our new, uh, the new human being uh, is, has access to all the capacities that we now consider to be lesser than or, uh, or perhaps suspect, like intuition like instinct, like spiritual power, like uh, capacity to manifest, uh, like understanding we have a divine appointment, like accessing the divine feminine, both for men and women, that all of those capacities, those uh, extraordinary, we call them, because we think they're not available to everyone except they are, those capacities have as much credibility and clout as strategic planning as being good at numbers, as being a, 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 a great athlete, uh, as, as what we've, we've defined in the patriarchy as you know, the high bars that are uh, what we call success, uh, that these other qualities that are often sort of demoted to lesser than, or we're not so sure about them, or they're too woo-woo, that they get the same clout, reputation, uh, respect by all of us, including myself, uh, and we access them the way you access the, the talent of a good masseuse or an ex extraordinary accountant, someone who's excellent with numbers, that we realize these are talents and treasures and that everybody has them. And some people have a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that, but we all have them. 
And uh, we need all of that. And they all become available, accessible, and they have, um, uh, they have uh, respect. They have our respect. And they are, um, uh, there's room for them to be fully self-expressed and not doubted. Um, and that we use them. Um, you know, our relationship with uh, astrology, our relationship with um, uh, the Enneagram, things that, you know, are, are sort of sidelined. So I think all of that is part of the divine feminine expression. It's, it has enormous power that's so untapped in today's world. And when we unleash it, you know, we're, that's a whole nother human being. That's a whole nother human being. Mm -hmm. Now, Lynn, I want to uh, track back for a moment and you mentioned this uh, speech you heard uh, from Buckminster Fuller about how we can create a world where there's enough for everyone. And you know, in your book, The Soul of Money, there's a, a great deal of very intelligent attention that you put on this whole notion of living from a sense of sufficiency. There's enough versus a sense of scarcity. And here's the question I have for you. Uh, I'm going to be uh, vulnerable here, which is I think a lot of people, myself included, we feel that sense of sufficiency at certain times, walking through a forest, being with the tree, at certain moments where we feel peaceful. But there are other times when that feeling of scarcity comes up. It's different for different people for different reasons. Maybe there's for some people it has to do with uh, you know financial pressures that they feel on their life or some lack of love someone might feel in their relationships, something like that. And my question to you is when we notice that feeling of scarcity come up, like we're committed to this other way of being and we know it, but there's still these moments where that's not our actual experience. What, what do you recommend? Well, um, the sufficiency principle, I'll say, that I, and, and it's in, in, in a, a framework called the soul of money, um, that the, uh, the capitalist system, the commercialization of everything, the commodification, whatever that word is, of everything, uh, the consumer society has, has so overtaken everything. I'm going to say this as a preamble to answering your question, um, that uh, we think we live in an economic system that's taken over the ecological system rather than the economy is a subset of the e ecology, eco-eco. Uh, the, the, we've made our home the economy rather than the ecology, eco means home. And we need to reclaim our home in the ecological world. And then we can have an economic system, but it needs to be consistent with the laws the natural laws of the e ecological systems. But we have done something very different. We're living in the eco economic system, which is based on scarcity. So, so the, the whole book is really pointing to that our psychology, our philosophy, our education, our religion, everything is kind of based on the economic scarcity model. And that's false because we do have enough for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life, but we behave as if we don't. So we hoard so much that we leave out millions and millions of people. So we generate the world of scarcity when it isn't a world of scarcity. Okay, so now back up about personally. So we personally have uh, kind of bought in 
I think all of us, in an unconscious, unexamined way to the belief that there's not enough time, there's not enough love, there's not enough sex, there's not enough money, there's not enough square feet in my house, there's not enough this, there's not enough that, that it's almost like a siren song of a consumer culture, there's not enough and I've got to have more. And that's what I want to free people of because there are those moments, as you as you describe, when you know you are enough, there is enough, but then in a minute it's gone because of advertising and marketing and the and this economic system has sort of taken over everything. And so for me, uh, the, the principle of sufficiency, and then I'll see if I can be more personal in answering your question, is to let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need. And it's hard to distinguish that in a world that wants you to get more of everything. So if you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, it frees up all the energy that's tied up in that mythology of that chase, that franticness, to turn and pay attention to what you have. When you pay attention to what you have, it expands. Just like when you stop trying to scramble to get more time and pay attention to this moment, this moment, and be totally present, it expands before your very eyes. Um, so that principle, the principle of sufficiency, is really about presence. It's really about being with what you already have and knowing that it's yours to be with and then to share, to share. When we share what we already have, our experience of what we have expands. Even though we, it may seem like, well, you have less of that. No, when you share what you already have, it expands before your very eyes. It expands in your experience. So like if you have financial um, uh, problems, and I work with people who do, of course, Soul of Money Institute, um, if you start to really look and see what you have and what you, uh, and make it a real difference with what you have and begin to share it in a way that's consistent with your own integrity, it starts to grow in the nourishment of that intention. In reality, I'm not really talking about an amount, but actually amounts actually do grow as well. So this wonderful phrase that you've heard me say a million times, but I'll say it again, what we appreciate truly does appreciate. It really does work that way. And even in time, sex, money, possessions, it, it really does work that way. If we can free ourselves from the mania of the scarcity mindset. Now, I want to just acknowledge there are people who need more money, more water, more access to food, more jobs, more housing. I'm not talking about those situations. I'm talking about a mindset, an unconscious, unexamined mindset that haunts all of us, uh, especially those of us who do have what we need and has us clamoring for more all the time, which generates a world where those who really, really, truly do not have enough can't get access to anything because those of us who do have enough are always trying to get more. So you know, as Gandhi said, there's enough for our need, but not for our greed. If we can shift from our wants, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't want stuff. I, I, I want things. I, I would love to have a, 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 a Tesla, uh, etc. But I don't need one, you know, <laughs> but I'd love to have one. And that's okay. Uh, I'm talking about something else. And I, I know um, you, I know you do get it, but I'm just trying to be articulate enough to, to let people know you can free yourself from that mania by just stepping out of the consumer culture for a moment, 
paying attention to what you already have, seeing how you can share it, whether it's time or money or possessions, more generously. And that actually is the source of recognizing and living and dwelling in the truth, what I call the radical surprising truths of the space of sufficiency. So the very first move you made, it was so powerful that I want to highlight it, had us separate our ecological embeddedness from a kind of economic trance. And uh, I wonder if you can say more how to view money and economics when you're no longer caught in the consumer brainwashing around it, but instead you're like, oh, I'm, I'm an expression and part of the earth, and this is a financial system that's over there. How that shifts things? Well, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, here we are living in a world where marketing, advertising, and, you know, even for this podcast, there'll probably be little interruptions of, I don't know if there will be advertising, but you can hardly listen to anything without it getting interrupted with some blaring advertisement about something. So it's very, very hard to do what I'm about to say. But I'll just say that the, um, uh, the, the experience of really being connected to our home, eco, the ecological miracle that we are an expression of. We don't live on the earth. We are of the earth. That's where we came from, you know, so that we are part of all of that gets blocked and truncated and disrupted by this uh, huge monster, uh, the economy. I mean, you know, all economy is not bad, but the economic system is so rooted in scarcity and there's not enough and more is better that uh, we get caught in that in every aspect of our lives. And to free ourselves from that is, is pretty hard. But I'll, I'll, I was going to just tell a, a little baby story. I, I, I was asked to do a TED talk on Wall Street. And I thought, Wall Street, you know, I'm not an investment manager. I didn't go to business school. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a billionaire. I'm, I, I wrote a book called The Soul of Money, but it's kind of, you know, it's not really a Wall Street kind of book. But some guy who was doing a TED thing on Wall Street said, you know, we should have her. She'd be kind of an interesting change. And I remember I got up there and there was an audience. It wasn't, it was an early TED talk before there was a lot of controls over how you do a TED talk. So I just got up there and started talking. <laughs> And I looked out of it, and 500 people. Uh, it was it was in the um, you know the board of trade. Uh, it was in the where, where people trade. What's it called? That place where you can ring the bell. It was there. Yeah, on um, the floor of of the trading the trading floor. Yeah, okay. they, have a, they have like a little auditorium there. Right. So it was there where all those people yell and scream at each other, and um and and it was in the auditorium, and they were all almost all men. And I st stood in front of them, and I said, I only have so many minutes here, but I want to leave you with a thought. Perhaps the economic system is a subset of the ecological system in which we live. Just imagine that, that it's, it's merely a subset of the ecological system in which we live, rather than the economy is about taking the ecology and turning it into money. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe, and I want to suggest you think about this, that the fact that we even have an economy is given to us by the extraordinary generosity 
the infinite bounty of the ecology. And the economy is an opportunity to be economical with how we use the gifts of that extraordinary ecological system. And I remember it was like, people were like, <laughs> but at the same time, I got unbelievable response from that talk. And I'll, I'll just say that there's a way of living where we realize that everything, the computer on which I am speaking to you, the microphone that makes this technology possible is from the earth. This is, these are metals from the earth. We have so mined and um, extracted uh, the, uh, the things that we love so much from the earth that we now have this enormous power to now really, really give back to her in not only equal measure, but in enormous bounty. And how can one live in a way that that's what you're in touch with, the enormous bounty that we have the opportunity to return to her? Um, that's different than living in scarcity and trying to figure out how many more square, square feet of your house can you put on in the next year and who are you going to get as a contractor and how much do you need to pay them? All of that is you know, practical. Yes, we need to do that. But can we do that in a way that we're regenerating life? Paul Hawken at the end of his book and also on his website, and I, I know you know this probably as well as I do, says there's like questions to ask yourself before you take any action. Is this going to regenerate life or degenerate life? Is this going to steal from future generations or heal that which we want to give to future generations? And there's a whole list of questions that you ask yourself before you make any sort of large expenditure or any large um, uh, choice. And it's just, it really is, it's, it's beautiful. It makes, you, it makes you sing. When you get to the bottom of the list and you make a choice, you feel so good about who you are. And so I think that's the way we, we can live now. And it will make us happier people. Okay, Lynn, just a couple final questions. You know, you're clearly someone who's super on purpose. You, you said it yourself, <laughs> you're on purpose. Your life has been filled, you and your husband together. Your life has been filled with a bigger sense of purpose and it's energized you so much throughout your lifetime and now in your grandmother years. And it's just gorgeous. What would you say though to that person who says, I wish I had more of that purpose in my life, but it doesn't seem to be appearing. I wish it were, I wish it was the case. Um, that's a great question because that's, I'm just finishing my book and I want to do a different ending and I think you're helping me with that. Um, I think everybody who's been born during this time has a role to play. It's not a big role or a small role. There are no big roles or small roles. There's just your role. And if you play it, you'll have the kind of life you dream of. And how you know what that role is, is by feeling. Feeling, not thinking. Feeling has gotten a second place to, to thinking. Thinking is wonderful. But feeling, your body, your heart, your feeling energy is such an incredible compass. And if you feel good, feel really deeply good, not just, you know, a little bit of a high 
deeply good about your choices you're making, those are the right choices. And if you do that kind of choosing, what's yours to do will show up for you. Um, you'll see a, a through line through your whole life. What did you care about on the playground when you were five, six, seven? Were you the kind of kid who was a bully or were you the kind of kid who picked the, the bright kid first or did you uh, take care of the, the kids that were left out? You know, where were your strengths? Where were your weaknesses? Where's your heart and soul? When you kind of look back and see what is the through line of goodness, of heart, of truth, of moral integrity in my life, and how can I take that forward in a way that creates my evolutionary leap? And, um, you know, we do workshops that help people with that. And your podcasts help people with that. And what I say to people, if you are willing to know that there is, you have a divine appointment or you wouldn't be here. I just know that's true. And, you know, I found mine. I was so lucky. It, 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 you know, maybe I was just lucky. Maybe I was just awake. But Buckminster Fuller helped me. Werner Erhard, the S training, helped me. Podcasts like this helped me. And I stay in the zone of the messaging that's coming through that's helping us find our rightful role in relationship with the long-term future of life. We all have one. Stay in this stream, Tammy's stream. Stay in the stream of awakening. Stay in the stream of wisdom. Stay in the stream of people who love, who care, and your dharma will find you. You don't need to find it. It will find you. It, it does seem, though, that you might need to be willing to take a risk of some kind. There might be some bravery required. Do you think so? I think there's a lot of that involved. Um, bravery is one way of talking about it, and another way is surrender. Um, or you might say, not succumb, but surrender. You know, there's the... Um, there's this thing that I, I want to just say, you didn't really ask it, but modesty is the same as arrogance. It's just the flip side of arrogance. It's trying not to be arrogant. So it's another form of arrogance. But if you tell the truth about who you are, really claim it, take a risk and jump on out there, what happens is humility. You're humbled by the power of your own choice. You're humbled by the power of your own risk. You're humbled by the power of your own courage. So don't be modest, just go for it. Just go for it. And um, you will find your groove and you'll be humbled by your own power. Lynn Twist, I love your grandmother energy and the love <laughs> and light that pours through you. Thank you so much, so, so much. I love you, Tammy Simon, and the love and light that pours through you and all that you do. Thank you for being with me. I've been speaking with Lynn Twist with Sounds True. She's released an audio program called Unleashing the Soul of Money. And there's also uh, an excerpt from that program that's available called Meditations on Money. And Lynn, as well, was the commencement speaker at our very first graduating class of the Inner MBA. It's a nine-month virtual training program for people in business who want to lead with their soul. I'll just say it, all lit up and on fire to make a difference in the world. You can find out more at innermbaprogram.com. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. 
And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.